Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Alex Ackleberry is a technology CEO, but currently serves as the COO of Autoloop, a fast-growing disruptor in the automotive software space. Before Autoloop, he spent the last few years as an investor, board member, and turnaround engineer, including being a board member of Blue Stripe Software, acquired by Microsoft, a board member of Soft, uh, what, sorry, Stop Badware, a, a board member of No Before, a board member of Malware Bytes, and chairman of the board of Runaware. Autoloop develops disruptive SaaS solutions that are transforming automotive tech. Their 450-plus professionals are dedicated to providing best-in-class solutions for major OEMs such as Hyundai, GM, Toyota, Fiat, Chrysler, Kia, and Subaru, as well as today's leading-edge automotive dealership and um, large groups. At Autoloop, Alex leads the operational sales, marketing, OEM, and call center activities, and he's agreed to share with us some of his expertise and insights of being a second-in-command and a leader in the space. So, Alex, thanks for joining us on the Second-in-Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So why don't you give us um, maybe a little bit of background, um, quick little helicopter tour of what Autoloop actually does in the SaaS space specifically, and then also give us kind of a rundown of some of your, your background that actually got you to the stage that you're actually running as a second in command. And then I want to find out some of the differences between the COO role and the CEO role that you're used to playing as well. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, Autoloop makes software that helps dealers uh, engage their their uh, existing customers and acquire new customers. So it's a marketing automation platform that also has the ability to uh, manage the service sides of the dealership's business. So we really started out as service marketing, automated service marketing, then going into managing the service lane of the dealership. Uh, but we've since moved into having a, a, a dealership CRM, uh, Trade-in value, uh, so a trade-in value platform, which allows you dealers to value trades, and a bunch of other things. So it's a we're we're really the last of the large independent software companies in automotive. Um, virtually everyone at our scale has been acquired. Um, so we are that's it. We're the only ones left. Um, and as you mentioned, we have you know close to 500 employees, and we're we're at scale with. Uh, several of the large OEMs, and we have about 2,400 dealerships. So the business is doing great and continues to grow. Um, in, terms of, in terms of how I got here, you know, I've been a technology nerd uh, all my life. I <laughs> started out, you know, with a Commodore 64. You know, I'm, I'm 52 years old now, so I'm, I'm I had old. The same, had the same computer with a nice green screen. Exactly. So the C64 and the Apple IIe. Loved him. Always wanted to be in technology. Always, always, always. And got involved as you know, relatively young age. Whether it was programming or messing around or just you know, uh, uh, doing doing building your own computers, that kind of thing. So I, I had my landed my first professional job at Borland International at the wow. age of 21 in 1987. Now there was a time in Silicon Valley where you could get a free beer anywhere you went, saying you worked at Borland. For sure. <laughs> Nobody knows Borland. You do. I, I, I do because I'm, I'm your age, but yeah. <laughs> but boy, I tell you, back then it was not. It was not a well-known company. Uh, I mean, now it's not a well-known company. Back then it was. It was. Oh, back then it was the big deal. Yeah, it was, and it was an amazing company to to to, to start my career at, and I and I, 
I, I thank God that I started there because um, I got this incredible um, way of dealing with customers and way of building products that uh, Borland was very, very much ahead of the curve on how to, how to make products and how to price them and how to distribute them. They were way, things you take for granted now, like for example, a money back guarantee on a piece of software. You think that's normal. The, back in the 80s, there were no money back guarantees in software. You bought your software, that's it, you paid for it. Didn't matter if it was $500 or $1,000. Borland introduced a money back guarantee. Borland simplified the uh, process of the end user license agreement. They simplified a lot of things. And, and they also brought software pricing down to, to a reasonable realm where it used to be you know, $500, $600 a piece of software, it became 50 bucks. Yeah. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And then my career went off from there. I went to a startup uh, with a bunch of friends back in the late 80s. Didn't do that well. We sold out. I mean, we were young. We were stupid. But we did it. And we did sell out. It was a company called Aegis, which was uh, people remember some of the old Mac programs. And we were the first in the area of video titling and video software. Way ahead of our time. Way ahead. But, and after that, I went to work at Quarterdeck, another company which has been forgotten, but again, very well known back in the 90s. Uh, you know Quarterdeck now more as WebEx, which was one of our spinouts, and sure. also a good part of Symantec's products uh, were Quarterdeck products. So we were broken up, we went public, and then we were broken up into pieces and, and that whole thing. Uh, and then I uh, went and did my own, uh, my own startup uh, in the late 90s called Nygenics, which I sold to Kroll OnTrack a couple of years later or actually to on track. Then I went and became a professional investor for several years and worked at Bulldog Capital, which now is part of, God, every time I say these things, it's part That's of funny, something, right? something yeah. else. But uh, we've got ultimately acquired by Monitor, which became part of Deloitte. Yeah. So it's part of Deloitte. And then I went out for eight years around my own software company, Sunbelt Software, which we, uh, I had joined when uh, the company was, was, was pretty small about 10 million in revenue. I joined them at about 10 million. We grew to, to just under 15 million in revenue. Had a very nice exit uh, sold to a company called GFI. And uh, I ran the security business for GFI. Um, GFI, again, was a company that uh, made a lot of IT tools. And uh, the, the GFI was, um, sorry, I'm just one second. That's okay. Uh, Sorry. You, you'll, that's, that's the part you can edit out, right? All good. No, we won't, we won't probably do any editing. We'll just laugh okay. through it. Well, somebody just walk right out. <laughs> As you can see, if you can see it here, I've got a, got a, water, I've got a water thing here, and that's kind of like nice. walking by. It's, it's all good. Open office culture. Very good. They were very apologetic coming in. I think they really didn't realize I was on a call. Anyway, so I'll joke inside. Uh, so... GFI IT tools, and then I, I left GFI and really just wanted to do my own thing for a while. And I did a lot of work in consulting and turnarounds. Did a, it was a lot of fun. Did a lot of travel, uh, which I love to do. Um, but then a couple of years ago, one of my closest friends, Steve Anderson, uh, who was the founder of Autoloop, said, "Hey, would you would you would you come on and, as my COO?" And I joined him, and it's been a fantastic ride. Um, one of the interesting thing for me is that I, I had never really had any strength or expertise in selling very complex software applications that required a lot of integration points. Right. Professional services. I just didn't have that as my background. And I, 
I frankly shied away from that in my throughout my career because I just didn't have the knowledge. And uh, AutoLoop has definitely <laughs> definitely handled any issues I had there. It's a complicated, difficult software install. We have you know hundreds of integration points. This is a platform with seven million lines of code. Holy shit! Of which half are just related to integration, whether it's creating a credit bureau or this integrating with uh, a uh, the dealer's backend uh, ERP systems. Or it's complicated at Salesforce. It's so complicated. Or more so. Yeah, it's very complicated stuff. So, what was so? How long have you been with Autoloop now? Then, as two and a half years. Two and a half years. Okay. What was the size when you came in? How many employees were there when you when you joined? We were. I don't. I don't honestly remember the number. Maybe four four hundred ish, something like that. I mean, we've okay. since grown about twenty percent as a business. Um, okay. A little bit more than that. What was the um, what was the genesis of Autoloop? Did it start as as a like an in-house software package for some dealer, or was it developed as a SaaS platform to then market to dealers separately? It was started as a telephonic uh, automated telephonic system for dealers. So an automated phone system that would call out, yeah. and say, uh, "Hey, your your car is ready for its service appointment," uh, and that moved into marketing automation. That moved into the full platform. But it started yeah. as yeah. Got it. Okay. So, and by the way, huge, huge envy that you actually went from a Commodore 64 to an Apple IIe. I was never allowed to buy the Apple IIe. And so I'm totally jealous that you got one. No, 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 no. Wait a second. I'm not going to oversell myself here. My, my, my work with the C64 and IIe was always borrowing other people's computers. Okay. Yeah. Mine, mine was using it at school as well back in the day. So yeah. you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think were really interesting and it's just how fast some of these companies scaled and then either died or were acquired and, and to have so much experience around that, has that changed your perspective of, of how to build the company or the companies that we build today? Do you have any, um, uh, I guess, kind of worry that we we're building something that is going to be out of business in five years or 10 years or... Cameron, that is so weird you say that. I just look at so many of the companies I've been involved with have been at this kind of, you know, 500, 800 employee range. I mean, quarterback, we were, we were well over a thousand at our peak, maybe. Sure. But it's, it, there's kind of this range and you hit up against these limits and you do kind of hit these, I wouldn't say that they're ceilings, but there's kind of this bump um, and this is really, really rough, nothing science-based, but maybe it's up to the first 5 million is one bump, and then it's the next, maybe up to 20 million is the next bump, and then up to 50 million is the next bump, and the 75 million or $100 million bump, and then there's a $200 million bump. And I've hit, I've gone through those stages up to about 250, and that's the most I've gone, right? I've never okay. gone, never yep. worked a billion-dollar company, right? Yeah. But I've never done that. But, uh, you know, um, the Larry Ellison, had a fascinating, it's on YouTube, it's a fascinating interview about, you know, when they got to a billion dollars, they found out they didn't have the right people. Right, right. <laughs> our company, right? right. And honestly, I'm not sure I'd be the right person. I'm not sure I'd be the right person. I know I'm really, really good at this 50 to 250, 300 million dollar range, really comfortable with it. I can sit very comfortably in a crowd of, you know, you know 500 to 1,000 employees, very, very comfortable with how that is. Um, getting above that, that's a whole different game. And what kind of yeah. game? That's fascinating. You know, these are the well, things in business which are so interesting. 
Yeah, it's a different game for us as executives. It's also a very different game for the the mid-level team. I was talking to the founder of Infusionsoft and he said that a mid-level team can only go through two consecutive doubles in terms of their revenue growth. And then I read in um, Ben Horowitz's Hard Thing About Hard Things saying that the mid-level team can only ever go through one triple in revenue before they kind of put themselves for the most part out of a job. So um, it's interesting to, to think through that. But I'm also just curious about like the companies themselves. Like, are, Do you build a company in the tech space now, do we build them to sell or are, are people still trying to build these legacy companies that are going to be around for a lifetime? Boy, you know, um, I, maybe I'm a little bit jaded. I had a great conversation with a very close friend of mine. He built a nice 25, $30 million a year business. So I talked to him a year, a couple of years ago and I said, how's it going? He goes, Oh, it's going great. I got, you know, I've got my daughter in here and I've got my son and my wife is working here and, it, and it's just a family atmosphere. I'm like, that's great. You know, about three months three months ago, I get a note on my Google, uh, you know, search, and boom, he's already sold his company. <laughs> he's cashed out, and I'm like, come on. So, is, does anybody ever do that? And you know, I, I kind of wish we did that. I wish. You know, I've got four kids, and I I would love to have a place for my kids. By the way, my oldest son's name is Cameron. Um, oh, nice. I would love to have my own Cameron working. My 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 Cameron, my son Cameron, actually works uh, for. Uh, Malwarebytes. He's a developer, but um, you know. So it sounds. Like, it sounds like you're at least in an industry in servicing that dealer market or the auto market that you can continue to evolve. And as if you're into those channels, you can continue to develop for them. Correct. Like, do you? Is part of the strategy then of AutoLoop to do acquisitions or to continue building or? Yeah. What, where where are you guys focusing? All of the above. I mean, we. Um, another interesting thing for me, which is which is new. Um, not necessarily new, but a little different, uh, is Autoloop is not a venture-backed company. It doesn't have huh. external investors. And although I've had those kinds of operations before, in this case, um, our founder is very much focused on keeping the control of the company and uh, Steve Anderson. And yeah. he's also, so we do things that I've never done in the past. We use debt, for example, as, as a tool to require or to make acquisitions. We've made several acquisitions um, versus... Um, you know, you're raising an equity round, right. which is typically what I'm more familiar with. No, so that's great. Open up, you know, um, not that I'm not familiar with debt. I've done plenty of debt, but literally using debt prim- as your primary method of working capital, primary method of expansion capital versus equity is, is something that's also been new to me. Um, right. I've always used a combination of the two. So, you know, and it's nice, but I honestly, it's really nice being tightly privately held. I mean, there's no board meetings unless we Oh, it's great, for sure. I, I think more companies should actually focus on building real businesses with real revenue and real teams and real, you know, real business plans versus more, de- or, you know, more equity rounds, more equity rounds, more equity rounds and build or bust. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I do kind of tilt back towards the, I think more companies would be able to be built and survive if they actually ran it like a real business like you guys are. Um, tell me, tell me what Steve saw. What did Steve see in you to bring you into the company, and and what did you see in him or in the company that you wanted to go into a COO role versus the entrepreneurial CEO role? Yeah, well, um, just just first of all, I do want to hit back on that discuss, that point you had earlier uh, about um, building companies to last and all that, because I think we've sure. just very very fruitful territory there. Um, so I, Steve and I have been best friends for years. I mean, we're literally just uh, very close. And we've always, oddly enough, worked in different you know, areas together. And my last, one of my, my first startups was in the Boulder, uh, Colorado area. He was working in Boulder. So Steve and I are great friends. 
and it's a perfect marriage. Uh, it's a weird word to use, but it's yep. a perfect partnership where we, um, you know, he's the dynamic entrepreneurial guy, and I'm the guy who's basically making sure that the you know the organization's running in the right direction. So it's a very complimentary, and I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I really wouldn't have. I mean, I'm I'm used to being the guy in charge. I'm used to being the CEO. Um, but I, it's not like I'm stuck with it. I, I, I like working. If I'm working for somebody I respect and like, I have no problem uh, taking a second, second command role. It's, it's about moving the, moving the ball forward and creating a great game. My goal is to take Autoloop to a you know, three, $400 million company at scale. I talked about that, that kind of glass roof that I've had personally in my career. I haven't hit more than 250, 300 million in size. Mm-hmm. Great to be able to get above that and move to 500 million. So that's really why I joined it. So I'm curious, I'm curious on what he saw and I, and I see what you saw in him, like best friends and, and you got that huge trust and kind of cool to be able to work with your buddy. I did it with, with Brian when we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He'd been my best man at my wedding before I even joined the company back in you know, October 2000. You built 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Yeah, I took them for, I was the COO there and I took them from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six years. Yeah. Oh my God, I listened to a great interview with uh, Guy Raz. I was like, <laughs> oh, guy. He's great. Yeah. We're still, we're still very good friends to this day. In fact, Guy Ross and I actually spent about an hour together talking at the Ted conference last year, but yeah, that was a great, that was a good podcast. Brian's, a, that was a fun company and a fun ride. So I, I get why you and Steve are doing it. Cause that's what Brian and I got to do was we just got to hang out and build something and it was really cool. And only when it got to about a hundred million is when it started to get big for me. In fact, when I left, it took them a year to replace me. They brought in the former president of Starbucks US and she came in and said, what a cute little company. And I was going, holy fuck, it's big. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, what a cute little business. Let's grow this. I'm like, holy shit. Um, but but what, what Brian saw in me was that I had a lot of the franchising background. Uh, we'd been in a forum in the entrepreneurs organization together for years prior. So he saw that I could build companies, but he also knew I had franchising expertise, which he wanted. I'm curious what Steve saw in you because typically two entrepreneurs um, are, I forget what the term Brian used, but we were like, we were like nitrous oxide. Like we blew up in a beautiful way together until we just, until it got too big for two entrepreneurs to be running it. And I'm curious what Steve saw in you that allowed him to feel like you could be the operational side of a more complex business already. Like coming in with, with 400 employees, um, are you more of an operator than an entrepreneur then, or are you able to straddle that line? Oh, I, I straddle the line. I mean, I, I'm, I'm unusual in that. Yes, I've, I've been entrepreneurial. I've had, uh, I've, and, and I've, I've run companies. Um, the other aspect though, is that I really got my, my uh, teething pains out of the way in large enterprise and larger enterprise. Right? Okay. And so I'm very comfortable and conversant with how to work in larger organizations that, by the way, is often considered a potential liability because large people, large company guys have a hard time going to small company. But for, for sure, companies, I'm talking about Borland, which is maybe when I got there, it was 85, 90 million. And back in 1987, which, okay, that's maybe 150 these days. Um, but, you know, companies of that kind of size, up to 100, 200, 300 million, those aren't huge companies. And you still have, they're actually fairly small. And especially at an executive level, they're pretty collegiate. Yeah. Yeah, as you as you well know. So it's it's not. I think it's just that I really have that process background. I think trust comes a lot into it. I think um, 
I think I really trust a lot. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're bringing in somebody that you're going to just hand a bunch of keys to, you're going to want somebody, obviously, that you feel that's not going to screw you. And believe me, there's a there's a there's a big big push, big leap for an entrepreneur as you as you for sure. So you and Steve had that then for sure. Yeah. yeah. How did but, you how did you get on the same page with his vision? And what part of the business does he still operate? And what part do you operate? Kind of walk us through the org chart. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a fluid org chart. You know, I mean, I think I you know I have responsibility for for example the field organization, uh, which is a pretty big organization. Um, you know, and I have responsibility for the customer success part of the organization. And, I, and but you know, the, the, the fluidity is that, um, you know, if we're, if we're working with a large account, uh, say an OEM, we'll both work on it together. We'll have also the OEM team in there as well. And OEM is a big part of our business. So, you know, we, we, we have a, in our own way of working with each other, we have a pretty, it's, it's a pretty collegiate way of uh, passing things back and forth. But if you look at what Steve is really good at, Steve is a is a bit of a math genius. He's fantastic. At, you know, even though I've got a, a lot of background in, in, in the finance operations, he likes to keep that himself. He likes okay. to keep the finance area himself. Okay. I think he's very good at it. He's very, very smart with money. Um, and frankly, in some ways, I think he's a little smarter than I am in some things uh, on the money side. I'm more process oriented, but just in terms of the, the genius of being able to see where the numbers are very, very rapidly and see his, a path to a profitability in that, that I might not see is very good at that. Um, whereas I balance them very well on the, on the process side. So I mean, it, it works pretty well. And again, I, you know, I think people at auto loop know Alex and Steve as just Alex and Steve and two people that uh, I think are, you know, hopefully are pretty easy to work with. If you listen to this podcast, you're not throwing up right now going, Oh my God, Alex is so full of himself with Steve. I, I don't think that's the case. So is is Alex the um, the iconic kind of a leader, um, or are both of you perceived as being like in, in some companies? You know, you have like the the Howard Schultz or the Ray Kroc or the Brian Scudamore or the um, like the, where the CEO. I've always felt that the COO's job is to make the CEO iconic. You know, our job is to make them look good. Do you guys play around that area at all? Yeah, no. It's it, it is a Steve's company, and I respect it. Um, he compensates me very well. I'm very happy. And, you know, my job is not to take his job or steal his thunder. You know, he, it, it, the health of the company and the, and the success of a company relies on the number two giving full support to the number one. And anytime it goes anything different than that, you've got a disaster in your hands. Yeah. You know, I was a CEO of a comparably sized company and I had a COO working for me. And that COO, uh, I always do. I had 100% support from 100%. And, it's the same. and it goes both ways. I mean, the thing is, is that, these kind of couplings work really well when both parties are comfortable enough to give the power back and forth, mm -hmm. right? So he throws me the power, I throw the power back. What is power? It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, you know, some weird, you know, kind of game. Power is the ability to get things done. And, uh, and when you're giving your CEO the ability to get things done, and to, to give him more freedom to get more things done, um, then you're really, really giving value. And when, I, when I'm happy is when I see him relaxed and confident and walking through the hallways and, and saying hi to people. When I'm nervous is that when I see him stressed, because I know I haven't done my job. Right. And then he's got to have your back as well. I think you kind of mentioned is the CEO has to be there to support the CEO as well. It's got to go both ways. 100%. How do you guys, um, how do you guys stay in sync and, uh, kind of walk us through, um, 
I guess even less about how you two stay in sync, but how do you grow your people? That's a separate, completely separate question. So just answer them both. And how do you and Steve stay in sync? Um, and then how do you grow your people, grow your leadership team? How are you growing them? We, we stay in sync in the laziest possible way, which is we have lunch every day together. <laughs> every day. All right. That's a very lazy way to keep in touch, uh, keep in sync with your, with your, with your CEO. Uh, just go to lunch with them. Um, you're bound to have to talk about some part of the business. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, we, we have lunch almost every day. Uh, it's, a, it's a few of us will go to lunch and we'll just, just, you know, cause you're busy, you're running around, you're, you're running into the morning, you're grabbing a cup of coffee, you're going to your first meeting and, you, and, and there's no time to just sit for 30 minutes and just talk about how the business is doing, where things are, uh, do a quick huddle and then go back to work. I mean, we don't have long lunches. I'm just saying we just get together at least once a day and usually okay. So that's just in terms of keeping the constant sync of the business. And there's a lot to sync about. There's a lot of things constantly going on. Uh, you know, I really try to keep him focused on the strategic versus the tactical. My job, I feel, is more tactical. So his job is the goal setter. In terms of how we develop our employees, I think we do that um, in, in terms of developing the senior management team. Uh, we, we expect a lot out of people and we expect them to, to step up to the plate. If they step up to the plate, we will uh, reciprocate with with whatever growth and development they need to get to the next level. But I'm not looking to take somebody who's not, you know, showing that initiative to really want to grow. Um, that I'm not, I'm not here to. I'm not for a senior. I'm talking to senior executive. Yep, now yep. down, you go down a level. That's when you actually. I mean, we've done this where we'll identify employees that are not. Necessarily, I'm not necessarily identified in the organization as, as needing growth, and we'll identify those people. We'll work on growing them because we believe that they actually, in many cases, we think more of themselves than they thought. Than they do themselves, sure. Very common, as you know. Very yeah. common. Well, I, I came out of a company, my, my genesis back when you were at Borland, I was building a company called College Pro Painters. I don't know if you've ever seen College Pro, but it ended up being the largest house painting company in the world, and, and we were... Um, you know, taking university students 800 a year and training them to be franchisees. And then they would go out and hire 8,000 students. And then between May 1st and August 31st, we'd paint $60 million in houses and everyone would quit and go back to school. So we became a real training machine. Um, it was probably our strength was recruiting and, and leadership development. Do you have any core, um, core areas that you think are, uh, are important for leaders or important for COO? Like what kind of soft skills, leadership skills do you think are the most important for you? So, well, first of all, we, we all know that the term COO is, is kind of vague. I mean, sometimes it includes a finance function, sometimes yep. it doesn't. Sometimes it includes sales, sometimes it doesn't. Yep. So really what you're looking at, I think the, the, the name of your podcast being, what is it, Second Command? Or is Second it? in Command, yeah. Second in Command is perfect. It's perfect because it really is, it's the deputy, right? Uh, and the definition of deputy is somebody who, can, who has all the authority of the person above them. Like they're deputized to carry out those activities. Mm -hmm. so that's, I think, a critical thing is that you've got somebody who, who can take that. Uh, you know, Steve can go out of town, go out of the country, and people can come to me to get checks signed if they need to, right? We've got that. Yeah. that that's, that's really the, 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 the core idea. But I think what we were talking about was... Um, uh, like the leadership skills. That, is there anything that you're really good at that you might even take for granted? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, 
you mentioned Steve with his math skills. Have you got like, you know, what are your kind of Yoda superpowers that you kind of go, yeah, but that's not that big, but everyone else is like, holy shit, you're good. I mean, I think, I think people would say on the math skills side, they'd say I'm also pretty weapons great. Yeah. Um, he's not, I'm not as good as him. He's really good. Um, you know, my, but you know, the, but the, 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 first of all, there's the tools of the trade, um, whether, you know, and the tools of the trade in our trade are Microsoft office. Right. And, and yeah. being really weapons great at the office suite, um, uh, you know, uh, Excel, for example, is the tool of a COO. That is the tool. Yeah. It, yeah. It's your tool and your weapon. I have, I have been blessed um, very early on with having had a very, very strong background in spreadsheets. And uh, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and before that, too. Uh, and, and yes, I was part of the Quattro launch team at Borland. So yeah, I'm telling you, that has been one of the most valuable things I've had in my career, is having a really, really strong background in, in the office tools, whether it's uh, you know, back in the old days, WordPerfect and, and Lotus 1, 2, 3, or yeah. modern days, Microsoft Word and Excel. I, I remember what my very first computer that I brought to work, because uh, they didn't provide them to us, was in 1989. I brought in a, an IBM 8086, and I ha- had Lotus 1, 2, 3, and Word on it. And the CEO that I was reporting to was like, why, why do you need a computer? There's one, like Scott has one next door. And I'm like, well... I'm going to do like spreadsheets. He's like, for what? And I'm like, well, I'm going to show all our franchisees that I remember. And he's like, that's stupid. Like you'll never need it. And it was the dot matrix printer days. I remember back when you, when you wanted to print a, what we now take for granted in landscape mode, you had to export from Lotus one, two, three and import it into sideways one, two, three to then print it out on a dot matrix printer. I'm like, I think back to holy shit. Like, wow, that was fairly early stage. But I'm the say, I agree. Excel is a, um, is one of the weapons of the COO for sure. Have to be good. It is, it is, and you know, I've had. I mean, throughout my career, I've had this unfair advantage. I've really been very good at those areas. Yeah. And and I'm I'm so glad you said that because like that's exactly, you know, that's exactly how I would have approached it. I mean, I walk into my PC with my spreadsheet, word processor, and my and of course later PowerPoint. Um, and also, you know, so that. It's it's just it's just one of the great tools. But so skills. I mean, okay. So you got your toolbox, right? You need yep. to be really good at your toolbox. If I see a COO who's stumbling around um, in 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 PowerPoint or WordPerfect, oh, I'm not sorry, Jesus, wow, wow time <laughs> um, in in uh, Excel Word, yeah. You know, can't build a pivot table. I'm going, buddy. You are you are you are losing out on a lot. Um, yeah. You don't have to be you don't have to be building you know. Visual Basic script, but you do need you know those core things, uh, pivot table slicers, that kind of stuff, because that's how you pull your data together and analyze it, start working with it. That's the very valuable tool. Um, other skills, obviously, people skills, ability to communicate, ability to message correctly. You know, I'm I'm one of the communicate. I'm primary, the primary communicator for the company. I have a thing called Loop Love. Right. We first came into the company. You know, it was a lot of confusion, so it's we call Auto Loop employees Loopsters. And we have, I created this thing called Loop Love, which is we share success stories and happy stories and, and, and shout outs uh, to employees. Just, you know, all that kind of communication is managed uh, by me and sort of Steve sets a direction. The vision says, hey, Steve says, we're going to go out. We're going to go climb Mount Everest. And we go, yeah, well, someone's got to pull the Sherpas together. Someone's got to pull the mule team together. Someone's yeah. gotta, you know, and that's, that's, that's me, right? So he's Edmund Hillary. And I'm, um, please remember, uh, Tenzing Norgay. Tenzing Norgay. Thank you very much. 
Uh, his uh, Tenzig Norgay's grandson took me to Everest Base Camp by helicopter a few years ago. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, it was just uh, just two of us. We went up to Everest Base Camp and had breakfast overlooking Base Camp, and it was his grandson. It was really neat. Um, so that so so okay, so there it is, right there. It's Tenzig Norgay. That's yeah. Steve. Now who? So but who? Yes, exactly. Now who or how often do you ever have to tell Steve that Everest is the wrong mountain? <laughs> Like, do you, seriously, right? Like, do you ever say, hey, we got to go do Annapurna instead or that's the wrong strategy? Because a lot of, like, I think that the COO also has to be, if, if anyone is going to say, hey, the emperor has no clothes, it has to be us, right? Like, if anyone says there's something wrong, like, so how do you have the confidence to do that? And, and how do you do that? How do you tell them they're wrong or you believe they're wrong or you believe there's a better way? Well, I mean, you, you, uh, it's, it's, with, a, with, a, with an entrepreneur, a strong entrepreneur, and you know this, having worked with strong entrepreneurs, they can roll over you, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, there, there are several times, we just had a meeting earlier today where I was, eh, Steve, I think we should just, just do this instead. We were discussing something in, in the, uh, the sales activities. Just, let's just, just keep it simple. Um, and, you know, he'll, he'll push back or not. I mean, ultimately, it's his company. So he's right my paycheck, so he, he has a right. But I, I definitely won't. I won't go by something. And I feel ethically and morally, it's my duty to say something. Um, I'm not a normally a contradictory person. I'm a pretty easy person to get along with. But I definitely will say something. And I think it's I think it's essential that you have a COO, somebody you work with, you can trust. You know, there was a yeah. Who can say who can say that? Like we need someone to tell us when we're blind or that they think we're blind. Well, did you, have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody by the way? Uh, no, I need. I, I am uh, Tuesday night or Wednesday night. Movie, but but there was this one line, and I watched it over the weekend. There was this one line where Freddie Mercury goes off and does a solo career, and it's not that great. And he comes back to the to the band. And he goes, you know, nobody ever said no to me. Right. They did exactly what I wanted. And if you listen to his solo stuff, it's pretty awful, right? Yeah, I remember the era too. Oh, yeah, it's just like, oh, this was Queen, and this is the wow. This is I mean, for me, I was not not my taste. Uh, but when he was a queen, it was incredible. And that's the dynamic is that these guys are going, no, I don't like that idea, but let's try something different. It's not yeah. It's part of the greater process. You've heard the, the parable of the emperor that has no clothes, right? Of course. Yeah. yeah. So the, um, and I think that's kind of where I'm going is someone needs to now. What one thing I've learned is, especially with the entrepreneurial CEO is when you're going to contradict them or say that you think they're wrong is to do it privately one-on-one. You don't do it in front of them because they have this, Thankfully, they're very narcissistic often or they're very kind of strong-willed and they're going to drive hard. They're quick starts that if they feel like they're being um, cornered, they'll, they'll lash out or they'll kind of steam over you. But when you do it one-on-one, they'll actually hear it and they'll listen and they trust that you're doing it for the right reasons for their company. Yeah. Do you... By the, by the way, that's just called common decency and, and good manners. <laughs> well, like I, I like conflict in, in, you know, I like to have the team openly um, debating and saying, you know, in a team environment. But when it's, when it's with the CEO, I kind of sometimes want to take that aside, right? Where I want the team to challenge everybody on the team. But with the CEO, I kind of do like to do it privately. So I'm not sure how to stick handle around that or if, if it's right. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it, it's, all, of course, it's all based on context. You're in a group meeting, you're discussing a bunch of things, he's looking for ideas, you're there to tell him something. But if, if what I'm saying when I talk about manners is I'm in, a, I'm in a situation where I'm in a meeting and I really disagree with him. Um, rather, I, I, and I'll play it by ear, but uh, there may be a situation where I'm going to want to go, you know what, let's just take this offline. And then we'll yeah, go. That, exactly. And we'll talk yeah. separately and I go, I think so stupid idea yeah um, but if yeah. you do that too much in front of the other people yeah i don't yeah. want to create an atmosphere of conflict 
No, it's dead for sure. By the way, you, you mentioned something interesting around um, some COOs have finance and some have marketing. Harvard wrote an article, I'm guessing it was around 15 years ago, called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And they, they uncovered seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And it's kind of along that line that some are very inward facing, some are very outward facing, some are operational or engineering, some are process, some are marketing and outward. Like, it's kind of cool that, that we are very different. But I think that key is the, that yin and yang relationship, right? That two in a box or very kind of um, trusted um, second in command. Or, uh, but yeah, we, ha- we have to have these different skills. So, and it'll also, it also frees up the entrepreneur. Sorry? It, exactly. It complements the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you could define a COO as somebody who complements the, the entrepreneur. Maybe the things the entrepreneur is not good at or doesn't want to do. But for me, it's, you know, having been in this uh, on both sides, I think it's, and I think you have the same experience having been a CEO yourself. That's actually very, very helpful. I don't ha- I'm not looking to sit in his chair. I'm not looking for his job. Right. I'm, right. I've been very, very fortunate and, and to have, you know, had a lot of success in my life. And, and, and financially, that's not my game. Um, I'm interested in what can we do to build this company, a great company. And, you know, I think he trusts me for that. And then those things, I, I get upset when I see him being dragged down in the business because I feel that I have failed him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He, he, he should be, dude, I got this. Don't worry about it. And sometimes, you know, it's, a, the, 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 you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. That plays a lot of the job of a COO. Your job is not to sit around and, and yes, man, you're COO, you're CEO. Your job is to get shit done. And frankly, it's like, you know, uh, you know what, are those, what are those bodies doing on the side of that? Just ignore those bodies. That's fine. Right. Well, right? That, that's what I talk about in making the CEO iconic. Our job is to buffer them and pretend them for sure. Yeah. I've got two, um, two quick questions and I want to, um, I've got to, uh, I don't have in Florida. Yeah. So I want to, um, I just want to touch base or talk about, um, I guess an area that you are or had struggled in, in the past, um, as a leader and, and then a, uh, a final question after that. So is there an area that you had struggled as a leader that you've really had to work hard at or get better at? Uh, maybe a big mistake that you've made that you learned from. I think I remember your screener asking me this question when she first got me. Um, I think uh, the one area that I feel I've continually had to improve on is a, a level of communication with the people who work for me and work around me to make sure that um, they're, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll move too fast. I'll just be moving ahead of the whole pack. And I have to stop and realize, holy crap, these guys don't actually know where, where we're going. It's, and that's my responsibility. Right. So that's the discipline of having meetings and process and pulling those things together. Cause sometimes it's just easier just to move fast and get out, get out ahead of yourself. Um, that's probably the one area that I've, I've wanted to spend the most amount of time focusing on is, is making sure that those areas are all pulled together. And the other is, is, is um, making sure that goal setting on my own area is being done. I am great at taking the CEO's goals and running with them. Right. Sometimes my guys go, wait, are we supposed to do that? Yeah. Oh yeah. My, my bad. I didn't do that. Uh, I think, you know, I guess, thank God, I know that these things need to be worked on. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just don't clarify it or, or communicate it. How so about, um, so one final, go ahead. 
That's why that's, that's, that's I go home. Yeah, I love, I love those. So I want, to, want you to give us kind of your one parting leadership lesson, something that, um, that you wish you'd known, you know, when you were 21, a, a big leadership skill or a leadership lesson that you wish you'd known when you were a lot younger. I think it, 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 it really does work out in the end and don't sweat all the small stuff. And I know you've heard that before. Um, God, I wish I'd really really gotten that. I just spent so much of my career worrying, being yeah. just worried. That's, that's been mine as well. And I didn't really get it until I was probably 50 ish that I, that none of us are getting out of this alive. Um, none of this really actually matters. This is just what we do to make money and let's have fun while we're doing it. Right. And, and not take ourselves so darn seriously. You nailed it. I mean, I would go on a trip, and I would go to a city and I would run to the hotel room, work on my laptop, get up early the next morning, do my meeting, try to get to the airport as quickly as possible. I didn't smell the roses. I didn't look around. Yeah. I didn't say, you know what? I'll, tell, I'll pay for an extra night at the hotel room out of my own pocket and spend the weekend here. Sure. And see this beautiful city. I mean, I've been to some of the most incredible places on the planet. And saw and none. I, and I didn't do anything. Yeah. I just worked. <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've gotten a lot better over the years at just turning it off. I now finally don't work on weekends ever and I don't work after five o'clock at night now. I just I just don't. Like I just want my because I'm never gonna get caught up, right? There's always gonna be another goal or a bigger business or something to acquire. I'm not there. I'm deeply envious. I'm always <laughs> I'm always working. But I do at least take time to smell the roses. And I swear Good. to God, if people understood the value of pleasure, yeah, is a valuable commodity. Um, when I realized that taking a nice walk in Vienna or down a beautiful street or those kinds of things, those are the moments that you live back and remember and that you treasure and, and they warm your thoughts. So take the time to enjoy yourself along the road because you get to be in, like me in your fifties. You go, Holy crap. I just wasted a hell of a lot of time worrying my ass off. Why right. did I do that? Right. I'm going to leave us with, I'm going to leave us with that. I'm actually going to go for a walk. I've got about 40 minutes before my next call. And I think I'm going to go and do, go for a little walk in Vancouver and smell the flowers when I see them. Fantastic. Fantastic. Alex Ackleberry, thank you so much. The COO from auto loop. Really appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you for being on the call. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. You've been listening to second in command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.